What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Hollywood Happy Hour Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Anthony Bailey. Uh, today, I haven't done a podcast in a little while, so I'm excited to get back into this. I've got, including this one, uh, three lined up for you guys coming out in the next uh, week or two weeks or three weeks, depending on um, you know how quickly I can get them out. Today's a little mini-sode because I'm getting very, very excited for um, July 26th because uh, that is the day that uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the ninth uh, feature film of Quentin Tarantino, is being released. And I thought today, because I've done so much studying about uh, this human being and his work, that I would share it with you. Uh, what I've learned, what I think, and uh, a little bit about the movie. Uh, here's a quick audio clip from, if you haven't seen the teaser trailer, uh, here's a little audio clip. So, Rick, uh, explain to the audience exactly what it is a stunt double does. Actors are required to do a, a lot of dangerous stuff. Ooh. Cliff here is meant to help carry the load. Is that uh, how you describe your job, Cliff? What, carrying his load? Yeah, it's about right. So those voices are um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt. Now, this isn't the first time they've worked together, necessarily. They did a little short film... Uh, directed by Martin Scorsese called The Audition, uh, which was basically like a short film mixed... It was basically an ad, like a, a, a TV commercial. Um, I think you can find that on YouTube. Uh, but I'm, I'm excited to see them work together. I think that they're going to uh, bounce off each other really well. And, I mean, you know, the, the poster uh, looks pretty cool so far. Um, not much has been released yet about uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but... Um, Judging by the, uh, you know, the IMDb credits, which, you know, how reliable are they? I don't know. But, um, you know, what we know is that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Rick Dalton. He's this actor. And Brad Pitt plays Cliff Booth, who is uh, Rick Dalton's stuntman. And we know that Margot Robbie is playing Sharon Tate. Uh, Dakota Fanning is playing Squeaky Frome. And, um, you know, so obviously there's going to be uh, you know, scenes talking about, um, uh, Charles Manson and, and the Manson family and, and those, uh, the Sharon Tate murders, which are, you know, obviously, uh, horrific and legendary, but, um, the, uh, the setting, uh, of the film in 1969 doesn't really surprise me. And I'll tell you why. Um, I am a pretty big fan of Tarantino. I always have been. I, let me just start by just delivering that, and then I'll come back to the 1969 thing. When I was, you know, I remember being a kid, and, you know, Pulp Fiction came out in 1994. Now, when uh, Reservoir came out, Reservoir Dogs came out in 92, though, so that would have made me five years old. So at five, I wasn't necessarily, not only was I probably not watching... Uh, movies like Reservoir Dogs yet, but because it was a, an independent film, um, I didn't. I, what it wasn't really on my radar at that time, and I didn't at that time. I I didn't know who Harvey Cattell was or Tim Roth or even Tarantino, right? But I do remember distinctly uh, my mom coming home from the movies, and I was seven. And uh, her saying, I just saw this movie called Pulp Fiction. You have to see this movie. You would love it. And thinking back on that now, that's a wild thing to kind of say to a seven-year-old. There's, uh, 
you know, there's a there's a rape scene in it. Uh, there, you know, a guy dressed, you know, uh, as a gimp, and it's very violent, and the language and the this and the that. But I, the, the excitement. I remember the excitement of like, oh my god, movies are completely different now because this guy made this movie called Pulp Fiction, and there's never been another movie like it, which you know was true. And so um, I remember I didn't see it in the movie theaters, but when it came out um, on video, I went down to Hollywood Video just down the street from my mom's house, and I rented it, and I watched it, and I was blown away. I mean, I was already, at seven, I was already watching movies. Um, I've I've said this a lot on the podcast. I was watching movies like Scarface and Terminator 2 and, um, you know, Death Wish with Charles Bronson and... Uh, you know, westerns with my grandfather, you know, which were always very violent. And, and I'm not talking about, like, the the easy westerns. I'm talking, you know, spaghetti westerns uh, with Clint Eastwood, you know, good, the bad, and the ugly, fistful of dollars, you know, uh, where blood's splattering and flying. And my grandfather was a World War II veteran, so he also showed me a lot of, like, war films, you know. Um, he liked movies like The Dirty Dozen, and he liked movies with uh, Audie Murphy, and he... Um, you know, I don't know why he liked them, being that he fought in that war, but I think he liked the um, the scenes where there was the camaraderie amongst the men. And so he would show me those. But he was a big, big fan of uh, movies, and, um, you know, it was very instrumental in, in explaining to me how movies worked. I mean, I, I don't think, you know, if he, was, if he was still alive, I would love to pick his brain on... Uh, what his absolute favorite movies are and, um, you know, why he was such a big aficionado on war films, westerns, and action films. I mean, he he loved all kinds of movies and, again, knew how they were made. And I have I have a, a thought that I think he probably wanted to be a filmmaker of some sort, if not an actor. But that's a whole other story. So anyway, back to Pulp Fiction. I rent this movie and take it into my bedroom. Uh, I had a little, like, you know, 12-inch TV-VCR combo, and it wasn't on a table. It was on a floor. That's how I like to watch. I would have my TV on the floor, and I would sit on the floor with a bunch of snacks and things like that, pop that tape in, turn all the lights off, and sometimes I would even, like, plug headphones in. It had a headphone jack in the TV, and I would sometimes plug my headphones in, and uh, one, so that, um, you know the graphic language or, you know, not to be embarrassed if maybe there was a sex scene or something like that. Just got a FaceTime call. Keep going. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I, I remember I watched it and I was blown away by it. And I, I didn't, I wasn't um, confused by how he structured it. He structured it in a way that was like easily digestible, but it was also... I think easy for someone at my age to understand it more than an adult because adults at that time probably weren't watching um, cartoons and they weren't watching like wacky kids movies where uh, the story is jumping all over the place. So I think that's why like his stuff was so um, timely is because he was just ahead of the curve knowing where... Um, 
knowing that linear stories and how and the, and the speed of cinema was going to have to speed up a lot, and he was he really nailed that. So I saw that movie and I liked it. And then I didn't see Jackie Brown in theaters, but I did rent it because Michael Keaton was in it. Uh, I didn't know who Pam Greer was yet, um, and I don't think I was. I think I only knew who Sam Jackson was from Pulp Fiction at that time. And, you know, I wasn't necessarily going to see movies like Jackie Brown in 1997. I was watching movies probably like uh, Lost World Jurassic Park or like uh, Batman and Robin. I remember I saw in theaters that year. Um, Men in Black was big. Good Will Hunting, Titanic, Fifth Element. Um, yeah, uh, you know, movies of that Nate liar liar came out that year uh austin powers came out that year uh con air face off was a big one for me that year so i was more aware of john woo more than i was like really vibing on tarantino but then it can come that again comes out on video i go i rent it because it's keaton's in it and i watched it and um i didn't know about black exploitation films yet um, to me, it was like this interesting, weird crime caper with uh, something that I hadn't really seen before was what felt to me like a normal Hollywood movie with a black actress in the lead. So it was like this very different choice. And I was like, this director is just crazy. And, and this is VHS tapes. So I, I, I wasn't watching behind the scenes featurettes on the DVDs yet. You know, all I had to go on was, okay, these are the movies. And, um, I would only look at the back of the box. I wasn't looking at editors or producers or screenwriters or cinematographers yet. It was just like, who's starring in it and who directed it. Uh, and I kept seeing this name, Quentin Tarantino. And I have thought about this. I think Quentin Tarantino, take away everything you know about him and just think about the name. That sounds like a movie director's name. Quentin Tarantino is like, like, I like my name, but if you say a Stephen Anthony Bailey film, it does not sound as cool as a Quentin Tarantino film. It's got the right sounds for a director's name. So I would remember his name. And also, like, I, I the only thing I was remembering was... Uh, when I saw Jackie Brown is, oh, that's the guy who did Pulp Fiction. I still didn't know about Reservoir Dogs yet. I was, I didn't have like guidance when it came to me going into the, uh, into the video store, into like Blockbuster or Hollywood video or whatever. I would just go in and wander around and I sort of, um, let the, the covers of the movie cases attract my attention, like Silence of the Lambs crazy cool poster anything with indiana jones star wars um those posters like that would like grab my attention uh and pulp fiction definitely did because it looked like it kind of looked like a comic book and i was very big into comic books when i was a kid and um and then jackie brown it sort of just it had that 70s feel to it and i i i was beginning probably around that age to really like movies like uh, you know, French Connection, and and I saw The Godfather when I was really young, so I liked the 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 feel of '70s movies more than I necessarily liked the feel of '80s movies. And to this day, I just took one of those quizzes on online. You can like find out the top 100 movies, and you click along, uh, finding out or saying which ones you you've watched. And I did better on the '70s than the '80s, 
I did better on the 90s than the 80s. The 80s was kind of um, uh, not my greatest um, decade for movie watching because I was being shown movies from the 70s by my grandfather, and then my mom was watching what was current, so I'd be seeing 90s movies at at, at home with her. So uh, anyway, so that's all to say like kind of how I like discovered Tarantino. Then Kill Bill comes out and I go to the movie theater to see that. And I was, I hadn't really gotten into Kung Fu movies yet. So to me, that was mind blowing. And then he has like animation sequences in there and it was just wild. So once Kill Bill came out, my, it was like, I had, I had Tarantino fever. I was like, this is the dude because before before Tarantino was my guy, Scorsese was my guy. I loved, I loved uh, Casino, and I loved Goodfellas, and, um, you know, Gangs of New York, and um, uh, Color of Money, and, and pretty much anything he was doing. I thought he was my, and he still is my favorite director next to Tarantino, and uh, I'm actually probably going to do a, a follow-up episode of this uh, comparing Tarantino to Scorsese, and that's going to be really fun. Um, but anyway, back to uh, Tarantino and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So he chooses to uh, place the story in the year 1969. And the reason why he did this is because he has uh, an appetite. Like, he obviously watches a bajillion movies and puts us all to shame uh, if you're a movie geek. But he also is interested in film history. And he... Uh, about three or four years ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, he was talking about this book called uh, Pictures of a Revolution. And let me, I, I want to get this right. Pictures of a Revolution. I'm probably getting the title wrong. Pictures at a Revolution. Uh, my bad. Uh, it's it's a, a book by Mark Harris, and it's talking about the five movies. He picks five movies and talks about the birth of New Hollywood. Well, Tarantino was going around doing master classes, uh, you know, doing like two hour seminars talking about uh, the death of old Hollywood and the birth of what is called new Hollywood cinema. And that changeover was from 1969 to 1970. Now, in 1967, it that was the embryonic stage of that changeover. Um you know, the, the old guard of, uh, like, Jack Warner running a studio and controlling what was being said and what was being shown in movies was dying, and in were coming the movie brats. De Palma, Brian De Palma, Francis Ford Coppola, George Lucas, Martin Scorsese, Steven Spielberg, uh, John Milius, and guys like that, they were coming in, and they were these guys that uh, were, were kind of changing it all up. You know, they were doing things a different way. And if you watch movies in the 1960s, if you just picked 10 random movies and then picked, like, 10 movies from the 70s, like The Godfather, Taxi Driver, um, French Connection, movies like that, it, does, you, it looks like it jumped 50 years in progress, instead of four years or five years in progress from the 60s to the 70s. And that's the interesting thing. Like, if you look at any art form, it evolves. Look at um, painting, for instance. Uh, all the different, you know, from expressionism to cubism to realism. Uh, it, it, it goes in stages, and the way painters paint changes general, generationally. Well, that's what happens with filmmakers. Directors are the painter, and the movie is the painting. So, um, 
And there's always a front runner leading the way stylistically. Sticking to Tarantino, Tarantino comes out, what happens? All these other directors see what he's doing, they bite his style, and they start putting out uh, films that feel Tarantino-esque, right? Um, and we've seen, like, Boondock Saints came out. There's no Boondock Saints if there's no Pulp Fiction. That's just a fact. Um, so that's what happens, genera- genera- generationally speaking, is... Um, it, it the art form evolves and changes. Now, that can be controlled by, say, technology change. For instance, film goes out, digital comes in. Digital changes the way people shoot. You have a lot more freedom with the camera. You can just keep shooting nonstop because you only had, like, I think 12 to 14 minutes. I, I'm probably wrong on that figure, but it's something like that per magazine of film that was used. Well, on digital, you can shoot for an hour without cutting if you wanted to. Some, some directors do that. I don't like doing that, but um, the, uh, the idea that technology changes everything, you know, the better the cameras get, uh, the, you can use different lighting. Uh, on film, you have to really light it well because film is unforgiving, and if you don't light it properly, it's going to look like um, a Super 8 home video that you know, grandma took at the cookout, you know, uh, it, it won't look good. So you have to, you really had to know how to light. Well, with digital, as you guys know, take out your phone, switch it over to a video and start recording and just look at the image. You're not lighting it. The, the, but because digital, uh, handles light so well, you don't have to light as much uh, as you did in the past. So technology changes the art form. And, uh, and then artists change the art form too with, with how they write. So Quentin Tarantino is an auteur. Uh, he writes his own work. He has a vision. He directs the vision. He handles it in editing. And it's his film, essentially. It's not, you know, yes, other people are helping him to realize the vision and get it down. It's not just him. But more than a hired gun, let's say, a director that's hired by a studio to direct a script that he didn't write and direct it the way that they wanted to direct it. Well, that's not an auteur. That's just, that's a film director, but it's a film director who is doing a job. It's, um, he, now he still has to have a vision. He has to develop a vision, but he didn't create the world. It's not all his world that he's turning over to you and, and controlling the mythology and things like that. Okay, so back to 1969, right? So I was saying that there's this book, uh, the book, uh, Pictures at a Revolution. So those five movies that he talks about are, um, I'm trying to remember, it's uh, Bonnie and Clyde, The Graduate, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, In the Heat of the Night, and Dr. Doolittle. Now those kind of sound like five random movies, right? But they're not, because basically... You have Bonnie and Clyde, which was completely inspired by the French New Wave that came out. Now, the French New Wave um, was a big deal to, uh, you know, film uh, aficionados uh, who were watching. They weren't. Um, that's that's the interesting thing about like filmmakers at the time, starting with the movie brats. If you listen to Martin Scorsese talk. He's a generation or two behind Tarantino. He's a, he's, that dude is a film professor, like quite literally. He was a professor at NYU. But he has all these movies uh, in his head 
that he can just pop out and he uses movies to re- he references movies the same way Tarantino does in his movies where they're pulling shots and things like that um, from other movies and other forms to sort of um, evolve what they're doing so that they're not just making the same old uh, movies that have been made in the past. Yeah, they're they're trying to keep pushing the the chains forward you know they're trying to get to the goal line and the goal line is making something great and making something uh that hadn't been done before so french new wave french new wave obviously happened in france and it happened in the 60s uh jean-pierre melville um uh uh francois truffaut um uh, jean-luc godard these are directors of the french new wave so jean-luc godard makes this film breathless and if you haven't seen it it's actually really good um, but if you watch that in comparison to other films of the 60s, you're going to see, oh, this is definitely something new that hadn't been done before. They weren't worried about uh, making something like Singing in the Rain, which was completely polished and technicolor, and the camera didn't do many crazy things. Every shot was completely planned. With Breathless, it's documentary style. You feel like he's breaking all the rules. He's doing jump cuts. He's uh, the camera is handheld. Um, the way that the actors are talking isn't being performed, say, like a singing in the rain, right? Where every single line is said exactly as it uh, has been done in the past with that sort of weird accent thing that Hollywood used to do. Uh, and, in, and even in the storytelling, like Breathless isn't the most uh, action-packed, dramatic story in the world. Again, it's more documentarian. Well, um, Arthur Penn and Warren Beatty do Bonnie and Clyde and make it in that style. If you watch Breathless and you watch Bonnie and Clyde, you say, oh, I see. They pulled directly from that. So that movie was uh, revolutionary. Then you have something like The Graduate. Now, the reason The Graduate's revolutionary is because um, Mike Nichols, uh, which this is one of his first films, he made the choice for Benjamin Braddock to be played by Dustin Hoffman. Now, that's a big deal at the time because Dustin Hoffman wasn't known. And also, he's a short actor who has just like an every man look. Like, he he doesn't look like Robert Redford. The studios wanted Robert Redford. They wanted a tall, blonde, uh, for lack of a better word, Aryan-looking uh, movie star to play Benjamin Braddock. Well, Mike Nichols went a different direction completely. And by going a different direction than what Hollywood typically goes, that's how you do something crazy. That's how you push the, you know, that's how you move the chains forward. Um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner had Catherine Hepburn and, um, oh no, I'm blanking on his name, uh, 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 Spencer Tracy and uh, Sidney Poitier. Um, now, Sidney Poitier was the lead of that movie. Well, that was a big deal because obviously this is something that we're still dealing with is, um, inclusivity in in casting right and and diversity um so for him to be the lead in that was a, a very big deal then you have in the heat of the night also a Sidney Poitier movie uh where he's again playing a lead and he's a detective um both of those movies absolutely deal with racism in a big big way uh they're two sides of the coin in the heat of the night is um you know a lot more of the sort of um outward hatred the the uh it's very um the movie's not vulgar but the hatred is vulgar where guess who's coming to dinner is this sort of comedic you know 
subtext of dealing with the the changing times of the 60s with uh, the civil rights movements happening at that time. Um, and that, that plays a big, uh, big part in, 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 in every, everything that um, was going down. Because think about this, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. Um, so... We think Martin Luther King, we think, okay, well, that's the civil rights movement. He is the civil rights movement. Well, you have movies coming out at this time, 1969, a year later, we have In the Heat of the Night and Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Well, those audiences going to see those movies could not help but think about Martin Luther King. There's just no way. Um, And then the fifth movie that they talk about in uh, Pictures of the Revolution is Dr. Doolittle. Now, Dr. Doolittle is of the old-style Hollywood movie like Singing in the Rain, um, and, 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 uh, you know, Wizard of Oz and, uh, movies of that nature, right? The, the old Hollywood kind of musical. Well, that movie bombed. Audiences didn't want it anymore and they weren't having it, but they were very excited by movies like The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner and In the Heat of the Night. That's a big deal to think about because especially to think about Dr. Doolittle had a gigantic budget. These other movies had very reasonably small budgets even for today's standards those movie budgets are small uh you would call those movies indies based upon the budgets that they have right now and that's that's very interesting to think about so going back to tarantino right so tarantino was talking about this book a lot and um he was going around doing these lectures on the birth of new hollywood well i think what he was doing that whole time That was him doing research for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. He was also, um, and there's there's audio of this on YouTube, he was at a QA and a during a a screening of the 1973 Manson biopic. Um, And he was talking to, I believe he's talking to the the director of that documentary. Um, So... In me doing my research on Tarantino, I'm just finding all these things showing me that whatever he's interested in his normal life, he's not doing anything by mistake. He's always researching for his next project. So it's very exciting because you know when you go into a Tarantino movie, there's going to be great dialogue. There's going to be violence, definitely. Um you know there's going to be a lot of comedic elements, but what I'm very excited about is for the first time, well, I, I guess you could say Django and the Hateful Eight and Inglorious Bastards. Um, so this, I guess the second half of his filmography, the first half of his filmography, doesn't really talk about what's going on in the world today necessarily, maybe in subtext, but not outwardly. What I think he's doing in these these new films, which is watching him mature as a you know, a filmmaker and as a human being, quite honestly, is he's he's making movies that mean something. Now, what's interesting is I think based upon everything that I just told you about those movies being made uh, that had to do with race, being that uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968, being that he's talking about Manson and the Manson family murdering uh, uh, Sharon Tate and... Um, and if you don't know any of that story, I mean, uh, you can. I think that Manson documentary is on um, YouTube. I'm pretty sure it's on YouTube. Um, but you know, that was a big 
deal in the press. Uh, I mean, you know, he's still Manson still talked about as like he's dead and he's still the boogeyman. You know what I mean? Um, but I think all those things are going to come up. And I think his commentary is absolutely going to be on what's going on today with, you know, Tarantino is outwardly um, still trying to save film over digital. He is trying to get people into the movie theaters as opposed to just watching everything on Netflix. Now, what's interesting is that like, I, he's always trying to make films uh, that, that show where we're going wrong or where we have gone wrong as a society, as human beings, and as a species. What I think is interesting is that up until Inglorious Bastards, he did only have fictional characters. In Glorious Bastards, he did some revisionist history, and he uh, had the Inglorious Bastards kill Hitler. Well, anyone who knows anything about history knows that that's not what happened. He wasn't killed by, uh, you know, the Inglorious Bastards. He, and if you're a conspiracy theorist, you, you think he got away and hid in Argentina. If not, you think he died in the bunker. Um, in The Hateful Eight, he talks about Abraham Lincoln. Um, in Django, um, I'm not really remembering any real references of real people, but my point is, is that those three films and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood all seem to not be in that universe that he had created with Reservoir Dogs, True Romance, Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, uh, Jackie Brown and Kill Bill. If you look at those movies, names keep popping up. There's Vic Vega in Reservoir Dogs, and then that's Mike Mad- Michael Madsen's character. And then in Pulp Fiction, John Travolta plays Vincent Vega. Um, well, the interesting part of that is it was supposed to be Vic Vega in Pulp Fiction, but Michael Madsen took Wyatt Earp and wasn't able to do Pulp Fiction. So then Tarantino rewrites it and puts John Travolta in the role and makes him Vincent Vega. And then um, if you look at... Um, Natural Born Killers, you see Jack Scagnetti. And then you watch Reservoir Dogs, and um, you see Michael Madsen's character, Vic Vega, his parole officer, is also named Scagnetti. He was creating a world, and he was repeating his characters and and, uh, allowing you to, like, see all these different places in his world. Well, after Kill Bill and Death Proof, you kind of see that he has left that world behind, and he's sort of playing in our real world. And I'm not sure why he does that. Um, I, I, I also want to mention that he has repeatedly said that he only wants to do 10 films as a director. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood will be his ninth film. So with that being said, he's got one more movie, and I wonder, will he wrap it up by tying Hateful Eight, Django Unchained, and Bastards, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood together? Is he going to do something completely different? Is he going to go back to the old world of the first five films? I don't know. But um, I do find it interesting that he's staying in our real world now, and being that he is doing that, he will be making commentary on uh, everything that I've talked about so far. So, for not knowing anything about what's going to go on in the film, and I hope this doesn't spoil it all for you... um, I just found it very interesting that everything that he talks about a couple years before whatever movie he's going to do ends up sort of becoming the movie that he does. Uh, He does so much research um, 
And you can tell that if you watch Django Unchained, you can tell he did a lot of research to know the details, the, the big and small, how, um, you know, Candyland, how, how many acres should it be? He figured that out. How, do, how does, uh, how does uh, the hierarchy work um, from Calvin Candy down? He figured that out because he would do the research. And yes, there's a lot of entertainment in there, and I'm sure he took a lot of artistic creative privilege by, you know, doing things that maybe weren't true necessarily or were completely fictional. But at the end of the day, he was still trying to um, be completely truthful inside of his entertainment. And I think that's what he's going to do again with this new film. So while there is Charles Manson and there, he is going to be talking about new Hollywood and the death of old Hollywood and um, have a lot of commentary on that. I think there's going to be commentary on the fact that, you know, I think it's going to be his love letter to movies. He hasn't necessarily done that yet. And to make a movie called once upon a time in Hollywood well, that's absolutely what that is. That's the title of the love letter to Hollywood. So he's going to be talking about, uh, you know, the, he doesn't like CGI. I don't like CGI. He doesn't like digital. I like film better myself. Um, it's just so damn expensive to shoot on, right? But he also likes movies being watched in a movie theater. He doesn't want you to watch his movies on your iPhone on the toilet. <laughs> he wants you to go and sit inside of a theater. Well, as, as a theater actor and as somebody who loves movie theaters and as somebody who uh, has been blessed to have his films screened in movie theaters, I can tell you, yeah, that's the best place for it, where where somebody is, not only because the screen's so large and because the room's dark and because the speakers are, you know, top-notch, but because you're going to the movies that night and you're not going in there with your cell phone on, unless you're a complete asshole, you're turning your cell phone off and putting it away, and you're sitting down with a bunch of people and having a communal experience to really give your undivided attention to this piece of work, this piece of art, this piece of entertainment that somebody spent years of their life creating for you. And what I mean by that is, by years, is it could take up to a year to write a screenplay, how many years was he doing that research? Well, I just told you four and then another six months to a year to shoot the film, edit it. And then he's got to go do all the press and sell it and then hope that we go to the movie theaters to see it. Well, with the way things are going now with people not going to the movie theaters so much, that's a pretty big worry. And for, uh, you know, arguably the greatest filmmaker working and the greatest filmmaker of our time I'm sure he has a lot of aggravation to the idea that people will be waiting for his movie to come out on Netflix or to stream it or uh, buy it off iTunes or something. He's making this movie to be played in the movie theaters. So go see it in the movie theaters. Um, what else do I want to say on this? I don't know. That, that was a lot, huh? Um, I would recommend that book, uh, Pictures... At a Revolution. It's a really good book if you love film history. Um, to me, um, an interesting thing is that not only is is Tarantino this, um, you know, uh, professor of film who, who has seen, you know, over 10,000 films, I'm guessing, 
maybe maybe many more than that. I don't know. But just based upon his encyclopedic knowledge, uh, you, you know, I think there was that rumor going around when he first came out, like, oh, you don't need to go to film school, just watch movies. Well, I'm here to tell you that's not true. It Now, you have to watch a lot of movies. Absolutely. You have to know your art form, but that's not going to make you a great filmmaker. Becoming a great filmmaker is something that you practice. It's a, it's a practiced, um, you know, you, you're more a technician as a filmmaker than sometimes as an artist. Um, you do artistic things within it, but you know, to be a, a director, you have to know how to edit. You have to know how stories are told. You have to know how to write and you have to know how to work with actors. And on top of that, you have to have a vision. Well, he's got that in spades, right? Um, but I just appreciate what he's done for cinema. He's, um, during the Hateful Eight, he pushed to have over 100 theaters not only uh, play his film on a, on 70mm, on like it was... They, um, when you go into movie theaters now, everything's digitally projected. It's just a digital projector. Very high quality, but it's a digital projector. But... Uh, when I was a kid, I remember the film projectors and poking my head in and watching reels get turned over, uh, meaning a, a feature film didn't just have, it wasn't just one reel of film, it was multiple reels of film, and they would have to switch that over during the, the, uh, the film. Um, and so, anyway, he's done a lot to try to save film and uh, bring back 70 millimeter. And during hateful eight, when he did those hundred theaters, he had to get those projectors like brought out of the warehouses that they were in and repaired and ready to, um, to project his 70 millimeter film. He wasn't doing DCPs. He was putting films, his film on film to be projected on the screen the way that it originally started. When Thomas Edison, in, well, arguably, invented the camera and the Lumiere brothers and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the beginnings of the invention of the technical piece of equipment called the film camera was invented, it was made to shoot 20, you know, uh, well, it wasn't made to shoot 24 frames per second, it was hand-cranked, and they decided after a while that 24 frames per second was the exact perfect um, amount of frames per second for the eye to see the movie and be able to relax in it and be taken away by it and believe that it was real. Then you can look up Edwin S. Porter if you're interested. He's the guy who helped invent cutting in films because when you watch the first films ever made, it's just a nonstop shot of a train going down the tracks. And that was it. Like, that was the movie that, like, come watch this train. And that was like a big spectacle. Well, audiences needed more. And they figured out if you cut the film and attach that strip of film to another strip of film of a completely different shot, you could tell a story. So that's why we say cut. We cut the film. Editors cut the film. Well, we still use that, even though we're doing it digitally on computers now. We're still cutting. We still say we cut because we're cutting the clips. Um, and when a shot goes from one shot to another shot, we call that a cut. So anyway, um, there's the film history there and the, the, the original film, watching a film was watching a strip of film run through a projector with a 
bright light bulbs shining the image onto a big silvery screen. Now it's still a screen, but it's just, you know, digital images being shown through a projector at what is called 24 frames per second, but it's not really 24 frames per second. It's ones and zeros being made to look like it's 24 frames per second. Does that make sense? So my point is, is he's done a lot to hold on to what film, what cinema was supposed to be. It's not supposed to be YouTube videos shown in public. It's supposed to be a high art form. It was, to, and it still is to me, a mix of all great art forms, of music, of dance, of choreography, of painting, um, the way you light something, uh, the colors you choose, that's painting. Um, it's a mix of poetry. Any art form you can come up with, movies take all those in. Music can be cinematic, but it's not cinema, but you can have music in cinema. So to me, it is the greatest art form. And it is sad to see uh, filmmakers not shooting, especially when they could be, to not be shooting on film, to not be projected on film, to have people not going to the movie theaters anymore. It's, it's, it's a shame. Um, people are just as happy, for some reason, watching YouTube vloggers for two hours they're fine watching that to where they feel like they're not missing out by not going to see the great movies. Now, if I'm being completely honest, I think the movies of the last 15 years, not great. There's maybe 10 that I think are great films. So what I'm really excited about, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is that the greatest filmmaker of our time is doing CPR and breathing life back into cinema. And what I hope happens is that he inspires people to pick up a camera again and inspires great artists to push to make the f to make cinema great I, well, that ooh that sounds a little trumpian but to make cinema to push the chains forward like what we said earlier we haven't been pushing the chains forward we've been knocked back we fumbled the ball and lost 20 yards we have to push and i don't when i say we i don't just mean filmmakers i mean audiences as well don't be okay with the vlogs. Don't be okay with all the CGI. Wouldn't you love to see an old school car chase that's real? That's really done by stunt drivers? Wouldn't you love to not see um, all these, you know, um, wouldn't you just love to see like a, a modern day Lawrence of Arabia with these giant vistas showing you places that you'll never get to go and that you'll never see? Like, the, to me, that's what Lawrence of Arabia is. Now, maybe that movie's old-fashioned, but if I showed you, if I just hand-picked a few of the images from Lawrence of Arabia and showed them to you on 70-millimeter projected, it would take your breath away because that is a high art form. Well, if you go see Guardians of the Galaxy 2, I love that movie. It's fun. It's a fun movie. But I'm not necessarily blown away by the vistas that they're showing me of all CGI space because for one it's not real and two it doesn't look real now it's not supposed to okay that's first off anyone that loves Gardens of the Galaxy 2 that's getting pissed off at me saying that no it's not supposed to look that way I understand that but that's all that 
that's the only game in town right now. You go to the movie theater. I mean, the the last, the next movie I'm going to go see in movie theaters is Avengers. The last one I saw was Shazam. Everything's a superhero movie. And uh, we, we basically do a bunch of superhero movies or dinosaur movies. And then we get to the fall and we watch all the sad, depressing Oscar bait films. And that's kind of all that's happening. Well, it's, it's very exciting to me that... Um, be, and, and I did love the uh, love the hateful eight, by the way. Um, and I think I saw that in theaters like three times. Well, that's four years ago, so I'm I'm ready to go. I'm ready for another uh, great Tarantino experience, and I hope you guys are too. Um, so yeah, that's forty four minutes of me talking Tarantino and giving you a little bit of film history. And uh, this isn't typically what we do on this show. But you know what? It's my show. We do what we want. So I uh, hope you enjoyed. Go see uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood on July 26th. And um, if you see Quentin Tarantino, tell him that if he's only doing one more film, he needs to put me in it. All right? All right. Thanks, guys. My hands are registered as lethal weapons. We get into a fight. I accidentally kill you. I go to jail. Anybody accidentally kills anybody in a fight, they go to jail. It's called manslaughter. That was the best acting I've ever seen in my whole life. Thank you. Rip fucking dog.